Welcome back. I'm Kim Munson, and we are dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. I'm thrilled to have in studio with me today Stanley Charles Thorne. You are a fellow KLZ talk show host, and it's great to have you here. I appreciate being here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, and I love the name of your show. It's Dr. Thorne's Traveling Emporium and Medicine Show. So are you a doctor? I, uh, that's a tongue-in-cheek jab at what academia has become. I have an earned Juris Doctorate degree, which is a law degree. And uh, so I think, it, I think I can honorably claim to be a doctor, but I'm not a medical doctor okay. or anything of the sort. And I don't have an earned PhD, but uh, it's just one of those things that um, tongue-in-cheek, um, it's like uh, I, I'm not a doctor, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. I, I, so, I, it, you know, it's I totally you just have it. to get my my uh, my uh, unusual shtick and my sense of humor to get the. Well, I, I like it. And tell us, when can people listen to you, Dr. Thorne? Uh, currently on four days a week, Monday, Tuesday and Friday at 2 p.m. Mountain Time, 2 to 3 and Saturday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time from 3 to 4 rebroadcasts of previously aired live shows are available six nights a week from Monday through Saturday at 11 p.m. Mountain Time. Okay, well, uh, let's jump in here. I'm thrilled to have you and want to talk about something very serious, and that is these red flag laws. Uh, They're called, uh, or Extreme Risk Protection Orders, ERPO. And we've seen in these laws that we've uh, kind of thrown due process out the window. Uh, Tell me what you're concerned about on these. Well, it's almost hard to know where to start, Kim. I I don't know if you're aware of it. I've given some of my background and bits and pieces on my show since it started in April. Uh, For most of my professional life, I was an attorney. I am licensed in Texas, not in Colorado. For 25 years, I did nothing except upstream exploration, production, oil and gas law. That's the uh, go find it and produce it end of the spectrum. And I had a life-changing experience in 2000 with a divorce that I did not want but could not stop. And um, as a result of a child custody order, which was manifestly unjust, I was taken out of the lives of my three children for two years, and my parents were not allowed to see them for five years. How old were they at that time, um, I, seventeen, uh, Roughly 17, 12, and 7. Wow. Two boys and a girl. They're all grown out of the nest now. We have, I have a good relationship with all of them, but it was a... It, at a difficult time, uh, you know, divorce is hard enough on the the, uh, the adults involved, but uh, it made it extraordinarily, exponentially more difficult on the children. And at a time when you need to have a good relationship with your children as you're recovering from the failed relationship with the spouse, it just made it all the more difficult. But the reason I share that with you and your listeners is because it radically redirected my life into about 10 years of crusading for family law reform. And I litigated constitutional uh, law challenges to various family court statutes all over the country in both state and federal court. And the kind of anger that fueled me cannot be sustained. <laughs> and, and it's also something I laugh about it now, but it's a very destructive way to, to dwell. And uh, because the uh, family court system is such a well-oiled machine and there are, are billions, it's about estimated to be about a $15 billion a year uh, industry. 
When you uh, say I, that, does that mean the attorneys that get paid? or what? The money that's changing hands without taking into account court-ordered child support. Okay. But uh, one of the things that's unfortunate about family law, and I don't want to go off too deep into this tangent, but one of the unfortunate realities, family law, constitutional rights in the family law context is simply not taught in law schools anywhere in America. And so there's about 50 U.S. Supreme Court cases on the constitutional rights of fit parents to be free from unwarranted state interference. And so, um, but, but the vast majority of family law attorneys and judges know nothing, little or nothing about that, because in the day-to-day work world of a family law attorney, a constitutional challenge almost never comes up. I share that with you so that you uh, can appreciate the lens through which I'm looking at the uh, due process question that you asked me about. Okay, before we do that, before we get to the due process, I'm intrigued. So you said you didn't see your children for a couple of years, and you said you were fueled somewhat by anger. Somewhat. And, 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 and sometimes it, 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 more than somewhat. Yeah, hey, let's just call it a, a deep seething rage okay, at all times. Okay, okay. But you got past it. Uh, yes, I did get past it, and, and fortunately, I think my children have gotten past it. But I have bookshelves lined with books about um, the psychodynamics of family relationships, divorce, child custody, um, just a wealth of information. I've probably got at least two good books in me to write about family law and the kinds of things that we could do. It's like many other things, Kim. We could do so much better for uh, adult relationships in distress and the children that they have if there are minor children involved. If we do like the criminal court system does in some states where they bifurcate the guilt phase of a criminal trial from the punishment phase, if we would bifurcate and completely segregate the divorce action from the child custody action, then we would not have the children used as pawns. Um, There are some structural things that we could do in family law, but it is such a deeply entrenched, well-oiled machine that I don't see those kinds of changes being made. What what always disheartens me is that the pace of divorce has not slacked off in America and because of no-fault divorce. Each and every year, about a million divorces occur that coincidentally affect about a million um, minor children. And the life-changing consequences for those children, which could be moderated some, ameliorated to some extent, perhaps to a large extent, uh, we can do so much better for the children that get tangled up in the failed relationship of adult spouses or or Mm live-ins. And so that is something that uh, at some point this country will grow tired of the consequences. There's a great, um, gosh, I'm I'm drawing a blank. I I did television work for about three or four years and uh, a whole bunch of family law reform TV shows that are still on the air in the Minneapolis-St. Paul market. I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, Heritage Foundation fellow that we interviewed that wrote a uh, an incredible piece called The Costly Consequences of Divorce. And this would have been uh, mid-90s, I think, probably. No, no, no. This would have been around 2004, 2005. And I'll, I'll get his name so that uh, if you ever want to visit that issue. But it's, you know how the Heritage Foundation uh, white papers are. They are incredibly well done mm-hmm. and, and well-researched and well-annotated. And uh, we interviewed him, and I could have gone on for hours uh, digging into his frame of reference mm-hmm. about what uh, – not just the financial price that people pay 
uh, which, you know, largely can be recovered from. Uh, but it's the emotional cost that mm-hmm. people pay that uh, how can you put a price tag on a child that doesn't get to see, uh, you know, it um, it so fundamentally changes parent-child relationships in a way that if we started with a legal presumption that uh, the children are going to have equal access to both parents and then let the parents negotiate as equals from there, I think we would do so much better by agreement because then both parents have skin in the game. Uh, One minute aside, um, one of the best cases that I thought I was going to get a constitutional, uh, a ruling for a presumption of equal shared parenting on constitutional equal protection grounds was a Tennessee case in which both parents were attorneys. Uh, They were both highly qualified, very intelligent. One little girl is the only child involved. Uh, We battled that case lasted about three years, fully briefed on constitutional grounds and so forth. And in the end, the judge did what I expected he would do, which is because we had put on such a good case that the father was a very competent parent. Uh, He entered a judgment for equal shared parenting with neither parent paying child support uh, on the basis of the facts. And so he avoided the need to rule on a constitutional basis, which is a totally legitimate judicial function. If you can reach a constitutionally compliant result based on the facts, then you can avoid using the constitutional ground as the basis for the ruling. And he did that. But uh, it, was a, it was a real disappointment because the Sixth Circuit includes the great state of Tennessee and the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, which is a federal court, not a state court, had uh, issued some very encouraging rulings that indicated that they were open to that equal rights argument. And I was actually appointed uh, to represent an indigent parent in a uh, Sixth Circuit case um, as that parent's attorney to argue, to brief and argue that case. And um, so it, it was a missed opportunity. I'm sitting here smiling, thinking mm-hmm. about all the time, energy, and, yeah. and the effort that went into that case. But uh, I didn't, don't mean to uh, divert us from equal uh, emergency res- uh, extreme risk protection orders, but I just um, I want people to understand that I have a profound respect for the Constitution of the United States because as a history major, as an undergrad, I can look at other governmental systems and see how vastly superior (laughs) what has been crafted by the Founding Fathers is and why we are so eminently successful because it all starts with individual liberty. And uh, so as we as we look at the due process question about um, extreme risk protection orders, I come to that issue with a um, Oh, I don't know how to put it really, Kim, a sense of revulsion about the framework of that statute. It's just a disgusting piece of legislation from a constitutional perspective. Well, and uh, I'm not a uh, an attorney or a constitutional professor, but I, too, stayed at a, uh, a Holiday Inn Express, so I think that I know what I'm talking about. And, and well, actually- that, that wasn't by way of one-upmanship. It's just that I have a great love for the framework of our government, Agreed. and I have felt the boot of state interference on my neck in my parent-child relationships, and so I can well imagine what the effect is going to be when these uh, when this goes into effect in January of 2020. Well, the important thing, Stanley, is I used to think that reading legislation was above my pay grade. But within the last couple of years, I've done some voters' guides uh, for each of the elections on issues. I try to stay over on the issues, try not to get 
you know, snarky on on uh, politicians, although I, I am a little snarky right now regarding Governor Polis on this executive order uh, that he says that Colorado is going to be 100 percent renewable energy by 2040. And then he's put 24 people on the Air Quality Control Council. That seems more like a monarchy than uh, what we're supposed to be having here in a constitutional republic. So I am referring to him as King Polis right now. Interesting. I, I will echo that sentiment. Uh, and we should have a sidebar discussion about whether emperor or king is the better uh, moniker for him. But one way or the other, the uh, he's certainly not the divine right of kings in this case, is it? Well, right now, if the moniker fits, wear it. Yes. So yes. It, this is Kim Munson. We're going to go to break. Thrilled to have in studio with me uh, Dr. Uh, Thorne's Traveling Emporium and Medicine Show star. That is Stanley Charles Thorne. We'll be right back. <laughs> Everybody stumbles over that. <laughs> Hey, welcome back. I'm Kim Munson, and we are dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. And I'm thrilled to have in studio with me Stanley Charles Thorne, a fellow KLZ uh, radio talk show host. It's great to have you here. I'm just thrilled to be here, Kim. Thanks so much. And uh, I'm going to, it's such a, a great show. I love the show name. It's Dr. Thorne's Traveling Emporium and Medicine Show. So you kind of never know what you're going to gonna get with that. No, huh? you just, it's serendipity. I say, I've said at the beginning, and I ought to do a, a show promo, it's serendipity is a wonderful thing. You just don't know what you're going to get whenever you tune in each day. Uh, I love it. And when can people listen to you? Monday, Tuesday, and Friday from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Mountain Time, Saturday from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. Mountain Time, and rebroadcasts six nights a week from at 11 p.m. Uh, Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday. Okay, Mountain, uh, so 11 to midnight. So let's jump into red flag laws. Uh, you know, there's a lot of emotion around... You know, school shootings, uh, you, you know, people want to keep their kids safe. And uh, so in Colorado, we just passed a red flag law, and it was signed by the governor. Uh, but I actually read it. Uh, and as I was reading this, I'm seeing big danger uh, that, in fact, that uh, government could come in and take people's stuff. In this case, it would be firearms. Uh, the person's home, they might not even be home. They wouldn't know that the police officers came in or the law enforcement came in. Uh, the law enforcement takes their things, and, and, and you don't even know you've been accused of anything. That is so antithetical to the American idea. Well, the, the lack of notice is something that uh, proponents of the red flag bill in Colorado will say if there are what are known as exigent circumstances. If someone is ranting and raving that he's going to go shoot up the closest school, uh, there, there is something to be said for what, what are known as ex parte hearings, hearings without notice. But in the general context, unless there are those exigent circumstances, which is why they entitled the bill Extreme Risk, uh, in reference to protection orders. That was a nod toward excusing the ex parte nature of these hearings without notice. But it is inexcusable in part because there is no standard within the statute itself to define what exigent circumstances are. Uh, one, of the, one of the grounds for unconstitutionality, which is not often seen, but it is seen when it's appropriate, is statutes that are, are uh, unconstitutional for vagueness. And, and the very thing that you hit on is one of the most uh, gut-level things that everyone should be incredibly concerned about a government um, 
entitlement to confiscate property without notice and to do so without compensation on the testimony or the uh, complaint or claims of a single uncorroborated witness. That's a very, very dangerous precedent it's to set. It's a very, very dangerous precedent to, to set. With this, you know, I, I, have a, I have a number of women's groups we get together, and uh, we're going to be talking about the messaging. What, what can we say to people? You know that, that, um, that mom out there that isn't familiar with firearms, she wants to keep her kids safe, she wants to keep them away from the bad guys. This law, you know, is sold as we're going to be protecting the kids because we're taking the weapons away from bad guys. And so a lot of moms are going, well, I think that's a good idea. What would you say to them? I think my response would be to say uh, there is a right way and a wrong way to do what this bill uh, claims to do. Purports it's doing. Purports to do. Excellent uh, legal word there. The, The reality is this bill is about gun control and gun confiscation. And the thing that is most offensive to me when you analyze the bill, if this was really about someone who was a an imminent threat of harm to himself or others, you would be taking the person into custody, not the guns. Bingo. And the reality is, uh, if they had any care or concern for the mental health issues purportedly in play, they would be going to take in take the person into custody for evaluation. And I have a son who had some experience in, in England, in London, which led him to some familiarity with some things that they do when people need to have mental health evaluation. They take those people into custody for a short period of time. They are promptly assessed, and then they are categorized in terms of a threat and whether or not they need intensive support. Uh, pharmacological intervention, whatever. So they go into one of several different categories, and then that determines how long they can be held against their will. And if they are a moderate risk, then maybe two or three days. If they're a severe risk to themselves and others, then they can be held for a longer period of time. But that is something that is uh, consonant with due process because it directly correlates to the threat that the person is to themselves and others. And so when, when I, I guess the best way I could say to the mom who thinks this is a good idea, we need the right kind of legislation. Uh, this red flag bill is not it. This is like trying to do brain surgery with a Phillips screwdriver, a vice grip clamp, and a, a ball-peen hammer. So where we should be in the law, extraordinarily precise and focused and have a statute crafted to accomplish with uh, proper consideration for due process, this does nothing of the sort. This is an abomination. And on that, uh, if you're doing brain surgery with a screwdriver and a vice grip and all, uh, ultimately the patient would die. Well, you're going to do a lot of damage if you don't kill the patient. Yeah. And and one of the things that law enforcement, I was privileged to interview a Weld County Steve, Steve Reams in connection with this bill and expect to uh, interview him again. Uh, and he's a great, I'm sure you're acquainted with him if you haven't interviewed him yourself. Uh, he's very articulate. And for uh, someone who has uh, exercised his 
sworn duty for many, many years to uphold and defend the Constitution, the courage that it took for him to be one of the first of Colorado's law enforcement officials to say, I will not enforce this because of its unconstitutionality. Uh, he should be applauded by anyone and everyone who wants to preserve the rule of law in this state. Because there's a way we could do what needs to be done. This is just clumsy, and it's going to get people hurt or killed. The uh, the idea that there can be a no-knock warrant served on someone who doesn't know they're coming, who might truly have mental health issues, who's uh, equipped with a firearm, one or more. Uh, that, puts that's law enforcement in significant ways. Oh, it puts every frontline officer that has to go serve one of these, which is why I don't fault Steve Reams for saying he will not uh, he will not be a party to these actions. If someone wants to go to the court without uh, his participation of his agency, my understanding is that they're, they're free to do that because the statute provides for that person the civilian remedy. What's bothersome to me is um, the individual that makes such a report, the statute requires that they report it to law enforcement. And um, so this is an effort for the state to let a, an individual civilian be the animating force behind the start of this. And then the state takes over and it becomes a state action the minute uh, the police power is utilized like it would be if somebody called the sheriff's department and said, you know, so-and-so is threatening, you know, violence. The other thing I want to mention just real quickly, one of the other things that makes this statute so offensive in terms of due process is there's no attempt to define what uh, is worthy of response. Uh, And I'm feeling clumsy about how I'm describing that. There are statutes in most states where people that make threats against others Uh, In general terms, it can be called a terroristic threat. Most of those statutes have very specific uh, definitions of what constitutes such a threat, and the threat has to be uh, one that could be immediately exercised, that causes imminent peril of serious bodily injury or death to another person or to the person making the threat. So uh, my brother was career federal law enforcement, and he he took a bullet in a bulletproof vest one time interfering with a suicide attempt. And so if somebody's saying, I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to kill myself, if if, uh, the typical terroristic threat, which would be a third party, you know, some a threat to some third party, whether it's a suicide or a threat against a third party, most of those uh, statutes for which the conduct would rise to criminality and they could be arrested, they have very specific guidelines on what constitutes such a threat. Mm-hmm. This statute, you know, I could I could go in and swear out the affidavit and say, uh, Kim said she she just wanted to kill one of her kids. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you're talking about, you know, they uh, ran out of gas and you had to get up at three right. in the morning. And so, you know, so so just the cast off inappropriate term of a phrase could be a ground for which that would put this whole machinery into motion. Yeah. And so there again, it's vague. There are no standards about what constitutes a threat that triggers the operation of this particular red flag bill. And my understanding is that the term is preponderance, that there might be some kind of uh, something going on, and that doesn't require much proof. And let's think about it, Stanley. You have somebody gets in front of a judge, says, I think that so-and-so is crazy and, you know, you need to to, uh, take their firearms. What judge in this day and age is going to say, well, 
oh, no, I, you know, you need to give me more information. Many times they're going to say, I don't want something to happen under my watch. And so they just pass it right on down the down the. I, I cannot street. imagine the moral fiber and the intestinal fortitude that it would require of a judge to say no to one of these applications. Um, it's a sad day in America when uh, the uncorroborated complaint of a single witness. I mean, even the mm-hmm. Bible says um, uh, everything shall be established by two or more witnesses. And so there are fundamental aspects of this that are just inexcusable and so wrong. Uh, And when it puts law enforcement personnel in peril, um, this is something that there ought to be an outcry, whether you are a gun owner or believe in the individual right to keep and bear arms or not. This is a due process atrocity that we should undo in January before it takes effect. Totally agree with you on that. Uh, Stanley Charles Thorne, you are the host of Dr. Thorne's Traveling Emporium and Medicine Show, which is right here on KLZ 560. It has been just great to have you in studio. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this. We need to do this more often. Let's do it more often. And you have a standing invitation to come on, to sit in on my show anytime you're here. Okay. It's a deal. Okay. Thanks so much.